sort of old age sort of thing of like trying to that everyone has as individuals not just as businesses as to working out you know who you are what makes you special and then once you've found that then just being confident in that and, and kind of growing that and driving that and trying not too hard to be like everyone else on today's show we talk to rupert rickson the founder of perspective pictures a company who make videos However, there's a lot more science behind making videos right now with the flood of content that's on social. This is Tech Talks, your twice-weekly technology podcast with myself, David Savage, where we interview leaders from across the industry and share some tech news. Joining me on today's show, uh, welcoming back Akish. I'm missing the sunshine already. What's going on? I know, mate. I know. I had to take my jumper out because it was getting a bit cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're both recording in jumpers. What's going <laughs> yeah. on? For, for a couple of days ago, I was dying of heat. <laughs> a couple of days ago, I put on uh, I put on a t-shirt just to um, just for this. Actually, I, I was actually sat in the uh, home office topless. I thought, oh, <laughs> better not scare you whilst we record this podcast. I'll put on some clothes. But <laughs> I, I have had one call with our MD where I just went sod it i've shared a room with him he's seen me shower and, and i've played yeah, cricket yeah. with him like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> i'm not bothering putting a top on for this call <laughs> I, I, think, I think you the thing is dave with your fitness regime and your running weight you look better topless than uh, than me well no it's, it's got nothing to do with vanity you can only see my shoulders <laughs> on these calls so it's fine but i was like mate it, he was like oh what's going on here it's like look, it's nothing you haven't seen and it's, it's literally my shoulders but yeah, yeah, um yeah. does say something of slipping standards in in lockdown that we're kind of like oh should i put a t-shirt on for this for this meeting yeah yeah, yeah. For, forget the uh, business up top and then you know party down, party down below yeah 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 just just go full-on party forget about it <laughs> we've entered full-on party mode well if the weather allows it anyway um we will hand over to the interview and then we'll be back with uh some commentary and then a piece of tech news to finish off the show on today's show we're joined by rupert rupert you are the founder of perspective pictures you make videos um i suppose it's a little bit more than that but it's that's what the tagline is on your LinkedIn. So it's probably a, a nice place to to start by saying, hey, what do perspective pictures do? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty much the nail on the head, really. We make videos for brands to post on the interwebs. I make videos. There's a bit of a difference, though, between the videos that I make with, a, with my <laughs> phone turned on selfie mode, pointed at myself and what you're trying to do. So, look, what, what kind of clients, glib remarks aside, are you trying to work with and, and how are you trying to kind of help represent them in the market? 100%. Yeah. So we work with all sorts of different brands of all sorts of different sizes um, from big companies like Rolls Royce, Time Out, Huel, Deliveroo um, to smaller startups. And we work a lot with Cedars as well. So helping companies like raise money on their platform and making videos for them. So a massive, massive range. Um, and we effectively are a team of just under 20, uh, ordinarily based uh, together under one roof uh, in Hybrid Islington. Um, and we are yeah, a group of sort of young creatives. Most of the team are made up of, of filmmakers and, and that sort of thing. Um, and we make, you know, what we feel is that the best kind of video for online, the best optimized for the platforms um, and putting spending money on the parts that will actually add value to the consumer as opposed to fussing and focusing and obsessing on the parts that I feel sort of aren't really relevant now, given the context of how we consume media. Out of interest, when someone comes to you and 
you know, they're talking about wanting a video and you're saying they're about adding value to the customer. A lot of people want a video, but I'm not entirely sure that they always know why they want a video or what they want from it. And actually understanding what return on investment for a video is or how it's driving engagement isn't clear in a lot of people's minds, right? Yeah, hundred percent. It's, it's, it's kind of like a chip, like a tick box. You know, it's one of those things like, you know, you're a marketing manager or you're coming to a new brand and you're like, Oh, we, we have a website, but oh, we don't have a video. So we need to get a video. And, and to me, video is like anything. It's just like, a, it's just a medium. It's just a, it's an art form. It's a, it's a way of articulating yourself. So if you don't have something to say or a set of objectives lined out beforehand, then you're not going to get, you know, the most out of it. Um, so certainly as with anything, you know, the best thing to do is to work out what your objectives are as a brand, what you kind of want to say, who your audience are, all that sort of thing, and kind of, you know, make those things speak to each other, uh, and then embark on the journey on, uh, of, of video creation. How often do people come to you and you kind of sit there and go, have you guys actually thought about why you're asking us to do this? <laughs> Thankfully that happens a lot less now. And I think that's because the way we market ourselves, we're typically a a bit more of a sort of results driven business. The things that we're sort of criticizing, the things we sort of stand for um, are, you know, are the idea of putting a bit more thought into it. So generally they do. Um, some clients do come to us and they, they don't really know, you know, what, what they really want, but all they know is that they have a problem and they're like, Oh, how can we solve this problem with video? Uh, and then we kind of build the strategy out and everything else. Um, and then there are some companies that come to us and they're just like, we want a video for this on this date for this audience, blah, 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 blah. And they've just got it all together. And then we just go out and shoot it. What do you think makes a video stand out now? Because, you know, LinkedIn are favoring videos in terms of content. Uh, so there is a glut of stuff out there. We add to it ourselves. Um, <laughs> Yeah, what what do you think a good video should should look like? And I, I appreciate that's going to be different for every brand, but it's just some general ground rules. I think for me, it's just don't try and appeal to everyone. There's this massive focus on making like the most interesting and eye catching video physically possible to to the world, and that makes sense with the thought, the thinking of TV, where you pay for the distribution, you've paid for that spot. It's going out to X million of people. You want as many people to stop looking down at their tea, stirring it or their soup or their loved ones around them and look at the television and, you know, you're paying to be in the room. So you want to be listened to with social and that sort of thing. You're you're building funnels. If you're if you're doing it, you know, if you're doing some more kind of performance led marketing in particular, you're building lookalike audiences, you're monitoring who's interacting with your videos, you're bringing them to the, into the funnel, you're retargeting with other content, you know, all to kind of bring them in and, and you know, you know, build a relationship with them to then sell a product or, or whatever, whatever it may be, or align them with views, whatever it may be. So you don't want a video that anyone is just going to stop on when they're scrolling down through their feed. You want a video that, that appeals to just your audience. You want something that stands out to your audience and other people ideally will actually scroll past it because you don't want to waste their time and waste your resources on retargeting them. Mm -hmm. So, so for me, I think it's thinking about thinking about your audience looking at what they consume currently, you know, if you're, if you're looking at targeting, um, you know, marketing managers, what sort of stuff are they engaging with? What sort of publications are they reading? What kind of media are they consuming? What, what are they watching on Netflix? You know, who are their favorite presenters and why? What sort of, do they represent them as a demographic and so they're just reflected or are they aspiring to something other than, than is their reality? So once you sort of identify that, then just make something that looks like that because, people have already created their echo chamber. They're already scrolling through Instagram. They've already chosen all the people they're following. Mm. And if you fit in with that 
content, then they're much more likely to stop on your ad or, or a piece of branded content and engage with it. But if you stand out and you just look like a stale, shit, boring TV ad, then they're not going to stop because they're immediately going to see, identify, that's not content that I was here to consume. That's something else. You know, I'll just keep on, I'll just keep on scrolling. You know, we get served hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of advertisements a day. We've got fantastic, A, like, ad detectors in our brains and working out when we're being sold to and what an ad is and we've got fantastic bullshit detectors as to when something's being an authentic and we're being spoken down to so so yeah if you can try and add value to people and offer them something positive and you know offers them something that they might they, they would like to watch otherwise then then you're you're sort of in the winning winning streak really the the, the themes that you're touching on there and the approach i, I imagine applies broadly similarly to b2b and b2c but i would imagine it's a lot easier obviously for something like huel where it's a product that you can sell and you kind of go oh that's going to deliver x right okay i'm going to buy that as opposed to i don't know a large consultancy firm who might be selling accountancy services that's a little less exciting do you do you get as excited by those b2b projects maybe as some of those b2c where it's a bit more of a quirky product that you can kind of i suppose frame in a certain way I mean, I, I love it when we manage to kind of push those more, you know, kind of, how's the way to describe, less easily kind of like brands that don't as easily lend themselves to creating stuff, you know, just them just opening up the doors isn't, isn't maybe enough. But I think that finding a way of, of, of surpassing that, you know, to me, creativity is all around like, as a lot of the time, it's about operating within a set of mm. confines. And if you really do apply yourself still to those clients and you really do kind of try and bring solutions to that it can be just as you know rewarding um as you know working with it with it with a client like Huel, who are obviously you know b2c facing and, and a very exciting product and have a very exciting um, mandate so yeah it certainly can be more challenging and not every single video you make is going to be the steven spielberg film of instagram but uh but yeah I and mean, you just do your best to, to do something fun with it and, and have fun doing it Incidentally, your your strategy with Huel must be working because I see it all over the flipping office. When I can be in the office, <laughs> anymore, but there we go. <laughs> Look, we're recording, and you're you're sitting in your parents' house in Hertfordshire, which is where you started the business. I am in tracksuit bottoms, my ad, you know. Well, absolutely. Why not? Um, <laughs> I, I look at me. I'm, I'm in a fleece. I don't exactly subscribe to the kind of dresses if you're normally going to work thing, but. Um, I don't know what that even means anyway. Uh, (laughs) Look, this is the biggest company that you've ever worked in. It is now bigger than a company out of your mum and dad's house. But do you see that as a hindrance or uh, a positive when it comes to building your business? Because you you don't really have a blueprint necessarily to go off about what a business should look like. I think it's definitely... uh... You know, it depends on what day of the week it is. And when you're asking me this question, at, at a time like this, when the world and everything that we're interacting with is so unprecedented. I feel that it's quite a level playing field and actually having spent so much time building things and working things out for myself and deciding why this, that and the other should work is, is you know, it's it within situations like this, it's actually kind of taught me really, really well to adapt quickly and work out what I think and not just go off kind of structures that, that kind of pre-exist. Um, but, you know, there are other times when I'm sure I've been just fucking wasting hours and hours and hours of my time pushing strategies or ideas or managing things the wrong way or whatever that someone with more experience than a bigger corporation or whatever could just come in and go, sh- 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 just kind of cut things together for me and just go, no, that's not going to work. Don't do that. You know, and just save a lot of time. So, but like anything, there's a lot of joy in sort of learning these things out, you know, learning these things and, and finding out for yourself and, 
you know, working things out based on your own mistakes. And, you know, it's very rewarding. Um, yeah. And I, and I think that it has helped us build quite an unconventional at times culture and a very, very positive culture and something that is, is to me, you know, quite different and very special because, because yeah, we didn't, we didn't have that blueprint. We've built everything with the current world context in mind and just gone, okay, how do we best reverse this? Um, and then at times we've had consultants and, and that sort of thing and external people and friends and whatever get involved and steer the ship a little bit. And, you know, my dad just started working at the company about two, three months ago. Are um, you employing your dad? I am, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> and my brother as well. So. <laughs> I think there's a whole podcast in that. But anyway, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Rupert's daddy issues. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, so, it's, so there's like, a, there is definitely a, it, it's really hard because it's just all I've ever known, right? So I have no real idea on is it is it a really great thing or is it a really negative thing? But I've certainly tried to make the best of it. Out of interest, in the past, I've spoken to people who have worked in startups, having come from really large enterprise organizations, and they were told to go away and get startup experience before they could get employed by us. And they went and kind of interned in startups to then get a job in a startup. How would you feel about taking on someone who's maybe working at a FTSE XYZ company and, and is used to working in structures where they've got three, four, five hundred people? Would that make you nervous or would you think that, you know, it's just interesting to kind of get the mentality of someone who's building a business about what adds to it? Yeah, 100%. I mean, we have someone um, now within the organization who's, I think I'm allowed to say, yeah, they've just left BBH, um, which is obviously a very, very, very big advertising firm compared to us. They're 500 people. Um and it's great because, you know, it's just it's just that extra sort of reassurance because you, you don't know what you don't know. And ultimately, that's always a fear, right? So even if we have got everything locked down and we are doing everything the right way, for me, it's a great comfort to bring someone in, you know, with all that experience and they're able to help in some areas. In other areas, I go, do you think it's okay that we do things like that? You know, is this the right way to be doing things? And they're like, oh, yeah, no, it's way better. I much, much prefer the way you're doing that. So to me, yeah, I, I love I love having people like that, you know, come, come into the business at different points and, 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 you know, offer their time. And I'm hopefully the stuff we could teach them as well, but, but it's certainly uh, both a great comfort and, and at times, you know, great learning experience. Now, the last question that I wanted to ask you is all around kind of engaging with clients because you did get some feedback where basically um, clients started to tell you that you should stop trying to be something that you aren't. And you did kind of go down the route of trying to pretend to be, I suppose, your bigger competition and going toe to toe with them. And actually going in the opposite direction was where your strength and growth came from. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, when we started, you know, we just acted like we were a big production company and just pretended like, you know, that's who we were. Um, when actually what we were was a very small, you know, young team, um, very lean operation that sort of did things actually very, very differently. So we didn't realize what sort of made us different or special, but also of course we could never compete with, you know, these massive, massive organizations and the way they do things and, you know, playing them at their game. So when we sort of realized and we came around to this, what sort of made us special and, and everything else and, and became much more confident in that and, and sort of really understood it and the wider value, then we were able to really, really hone in on that and then really kind of, excavate that build on that and really really push that and now i feel that we're in a really good position where we can really compete with these big big companies and we're taking you know working with really really big you know clients that are taking work from them and, and giving it to us so i feel kind of very confident that we're, we're heading in the right direction 
but yeah, I think it's that, that sort of old age sort of thing of like trying to, that everyone has as individuals, not just as businesses as to working out, you know, who you are, what makes you special. And then once you've found that, then just being confident on that and, and kind of growing that and driving that and trying not too hard to be like everyone else. Um, well, look, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for giving up some time and, and sharing with us on the podcast. And uh, sure. fingers crossed you manage to survive being at home when you employ some of your family. I mean, that, that, I, <laughs> great dynamic. I mean, that should be like keeping up with the Cardassians, Mark, too. Um, but yes, enjoy the rest of your time uh, whilst we are in lockdown. And fingers crossed it continues to go well during that time. Oh, thank you very much. And best of luck uh, to you guys with, with, with everything at your end. So perspective pictures. We make videos. As we say right at the beginning of the interview, nice and clear what they do. Although I suppose, Akish, um, do you think for many people making a video right now is a tick box? Social is flooded. Massively, massive. Do you know what? When I was actually listening to the interview, funny enough, I had it on on the computer and I was just doing some general browsing on, on the old Instagram, as you do. Um, and the amount of videos now that you see, you don't actually think about it unless someone talks and then you think, Oh yeah, blimey! You know, it's like the the video content that we've got is is huge, and especially now, given all the issues that you know we're kind of faced with at the moment, with um, yeah, things like um, the, the initiatives in in the US and and Black Lives Matter and mm. all you know, even COVID and that sort of thing. Just I, I think now more so, videos are becoming a lot more. I, I guess is it normal or a lot more popular than than photos? Would you say? I don't know, but yeah, I, th I think, I guess, yeah, yeah, I think, I, I guess everyone wants to have a voice, don't they? And it's a really effective way, or it should be a really effective way right now. We're set, sat in front of a screen and people have more time. People are spending more time in their feeds. Mm. So they're probably more likely to watch a video than they ever would have been, say, in the office. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think, I, I think don't know whether that's, but that, that must be a contributing factor. Yeah. And also, I, I just think that where technology is at the moment, and if you look at the devices that we've got, you know, mm. the, the phones that we have, the streaming speeds that we've now got, the the blimmin', what's it called, resolutions that we have on our, our iPads and that sort of thing, I think video content yeah. is a lot more appealing and looks better to, to people, you know? Well, my phone's a OnePlus. It's not an iPhone. It's not Samsung. It's it's yeah. it's known as one of the the budget smartphones on the market, but is actually very good. And even this, which is like I think it resells at about six hundred quid if you want to buy it outright. It's not even their pro version. Mm. Even this shoots in four K. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and the stuff that you can now do with videos, even if you're just so forget about Rupert and his business. Even if you're just a normal person like me, download a couple of apps and you can literally make a pretty good bloody video um mm. you know and and as these influencers and instagram celebs or whatever you want to call them have shown us right and bloggers you know all it takes is a a decent camera some good software and yeah you can build yourself you know a massive career um by video I think, so, yeah. I think what rupert has to say though is really interesting because i have seen people say you know there's been a massive rush towards social but a lot of people are tone deaf mm. and when he's talking about you know this isn't tv 
don't try and appeal to everybody. The tone deaf people are trying to appeal to everybody. They're trying to kind of get a viral video. They're trying to get the most amount of views they possibly can. But I think you make a really interesting point that people have already created their own echo chambers and you have to enter that. You know, you actually want people to scroll past if it's not content that's intended for them. You don't want to waste their time. And that's probably counter to a lot... uh, counter to how a lot of people view social posts right um and it's saying create really targeted meaningful content where you've gone you know what if i I want five people to read this or watch this but they are five people that really matter to me that i'm creating a relationship with them that's absolutely fine try and get those five people to watch it and don't worry if they're the only five don't try and get 50,000 to watch it and end up pissing everybody off and no one finding it particularly interesting yeah exactly and also i think I think because there's so many companies now doing similar things, you know, look, look at products being sold, look at services being provided. There's so much competition in, in all walks of, of kind of commerce, I guess, that you want to build your own customer population or you want to build your own niche. So actually catering for those sorts of people, you know, would be good. Like, for example, I'm going to use running because I know, I know you're into running, Dave, but what might appeal to you as a product? as a runner might be different to what appeals to me, for example, someone who does near to no running compared to someone that runs every day like you. Do you get what I mean? So if there was one company that tried to go after me and you in one video, it just wouldn't work. You know, those sorts of things that happen. So I I think the companies that are targeting people, they're the ones that are doing a lot better. And then it brings us back to what we were talking about earlier on in the week about your kind of general you know, business concepts and stuff. It just builds that customer, you know, kind of connection. It builds that loyalty from a customer to keep going back to the same brands. Um, I think I think it's interesting that he talks about bullshit and and advertising detectors in our brain, right? Because on your point, right, if we take running, for example, mm. I, I've been looking to buy a new pair of, of running trainers. Mm. Um, so I went and browsed on a few different websites. I actually called up a local shop that shut because I knew they could give me good advice over the phone. Then I had a look at some reviews and other bits and pieces. And I did it in a very organic way. I went out and I had a look at specific shoes because I um, I need stability shoes. I mm. overpronate, so like my knee bends in slightly. Yeah, yeah. So I need something to straighten it up. But then I went on Instagram and every single freaking advert was for trainers. And it's yeah, like, yeah. no, not appropriate, not appropriate. I don't want my Instagram full yeah. of random adverts for trainers. I know what I want. Yeah. Stop serving me up other shit. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And then he talks about that, having those sensors in your brain, right? And the detectors to be like, oh, this is an ad. This is obviously, like you just said, this is something. And you probably got your usual... JD Sports, Foot Locker, you know, all these sorts of people. Oh, no, no, they're, they're, they're wankier than that, I'm afraid. They're oh, right. Of, yeah. <laughs> but, like, yeah, so it's just like, you know, we do have those bullshit detectors and ad detectors in our mind. And it's, it's with anything on social, whether it's yeah. Instagram, Facebook, you know, Twitter, or, or even even online dating, I guess. Like, you know, you, you kind of know you know, who's kind of bullshitting, who, who might be. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not even that though. I think, I think it's really hard for marketeers because I understand, like I've been looking for trainers. So obviously my echo chamber is running trainers. So therefore serving me up an advert for a running shoe makes perfect sense. But at the same time, um, it feels intrusive and it feels too much. Yeah. And it's also, not authentic. It's just throwing different brands at me. Whereas I've gone out and I've researched 
particular makes and types that I want and other yeah. stuff is just noise. So I see, you know, it's really hard. If you're creating a bit of content and it's a video, mm. like, like you said, you've got to be really targeted about who it is that you're aiming it at because a lot of other people, you might just inadvertently piss them off. And that—that that is, I think a lot of, I think a lot of companies, a lot of individuals right now are struggling to do that because they're desperate to get themselves out there and have a profile mm. because you can't just now bump into someone in the streets. You've got to do that socially somehow, mm. but they're at risk of really annoying people at the same time. There is. And also you just then don't know, you, you then don't know who or under what circumstances your video might hit certain consumers or certain customers, what frame of mind they're in you know, two, three months ago, you suddenly got all the, you know, hard selling videos and that sort of stuff, you know, got regulated a bit more in the UK because of the sensitivity mm. around coronavirus and all these sorts of things. Now with everything that's happening in the US and, you know, the, the kind of movements that are happening in Europe and the UK, don't expect, you know, I, I expect to see a lot more you know, maybe adverts or a lot more kind of marketing pushed out, which is going to be you know, kind of highlighting the fact of, you know, um, systemic racism or, you know, kind of the Black Lives Matter, that sort of stuff, you know, and and, and those initiatives. So it's just, you just don't know who to please, who, who you might piss off, who you might, I don't know, you know, catch on a bad day. So it's very, very hard to be fair. Their jobs ain't easy. I don't, I'm not, I'm not jealous of them. <laughs> um, Before we go to our advert break, you know, I'll, I'll give a quick shout out to Storm Collective, who've been on the uh, on the podcast before. Um, Rochelle Denton was interviewed on this show about a year and a half ago. Um, they've been, I know they've been running classes uh, with regards to webinars on, on, on Eventbrite, I think, with regards to how you make yourself heard digitally on, on various platforms. They ran a specific course on LinkedIn. So they might be worth checking out if this is of interest to you. But um, Rupert, thanks for being our guest. Uh, fantastic chat. Uh, I hope you're enjoying bossing your dad about at home. And, <laughs> and we'll go to a quick advert break. And when we come back, we'll have a piece of tech news. My fa- oh, that's like asking my favorite child. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite podcast? Uh, I think Football Ramble. House of Rugby. Um, Billy Yang's um, podcast. Freakonomics. Um, is Science Versus. And they're always very quirky. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I listen to that a lot just because the camaraderie and the individuals. Your Cast is a brand new podcast series where we talk to people making podcasts. On this show, you're going to hear some exciting new talents as well as some of the biggest names in the podcasting industry. We're releasing weekly in all the places where you'd normally get your podcasts from. Welcome back to the show. We are taking a bit of tech news from The Verge this week. And it's talking about an exodus of tech workers uh, from Silicon Valley and how it re- might reshape the Bay Area. So this is in Verge. Um, a lot of people, a lot of tech workers saying, I have no attachment to this city um, with Twitter and Facebook basically going fully remote. Um, there seems to be a cultural war going on. Uh, and the article talks about people who've basically moved. They have upped sticks and left the Bay Area without telling their bosses because they're working completely remotely because they they think, sod it, I can have a better lifestyle somewhere else, more affordable, save money, keep my job, carry on working. Why not move to Idaho? And I think this is really interesting because obviously Silicon Valley is a, is a micro, micro kind of uh, environment for this kind of um, how this might play out. But London's not dissimilar. You're starting to hear rumors of people going, 
hang on a minute, maybe, maybe I'll get out of London and move to the countryside. And, and I think one of the things that the pandemic might do is really reshape where people think that they need to live and work, right? Yeah, massively. And it's funny enough, I was having this conversation with a, a friend of mine who is a estate agent uh, in London. And he was saying how, you know, the, the the expectancy or there was something printed in The Guardian about local towns and regions just outside of London, um, you know, so outside of the M25 circle, um, are going to be going up in price regardless of whether or not the UK ends up in, you know, a recession or whatever. So, mm. you know, from that side, people thinking, well, you know, I can't see ourselves going back to a five-day week in the office, you know, in the city from whatever, eight o'clock in the morning to six, seven o'clock in the evening. So might as well just live outside of London and commute in every now and then, you know. So mm -hmm. that will suddenly mean a massive shift in terms of people, um, even other things like schooling, uh, people's families, right? So, so schools suddenly might get oversubscribed out, you know, out in the countryside. Um, what then happens with local businesses? You know, you're, you're catering to a lot of people. So it could leave a massive shift. And going back to the Silicon Valley point, is this, what do you think? I mean, do you think it's going to be the end of that Silicon Valley, you know, royalty type titles or, oh, you know, where are the Silicon Valley? So, uh, yeah, well, London, and I could be in South London here and still work for a Silicon Valley. I mean, I think Silicon Valley is is is, is an extreme case because there's there's yeah. always been this thing that, uh, you know, people in the Bay don't like the techies and the techies don't like them. Yeah, <laughs> and there's been that tension, and obviously there's huge homelessness issues. Yeah. The house prices there are ridiculous. Mm. Uh, so there's been a lot of tension between different communities in that area. Mm. But um, what I found really interesting, you know, it talks about the fact it's too early to tell whether the working from home trend will extend beyond a few companies whilst the reshaping of the fabric of Silicon Valley goes on. You know, whilst, whilst Twitter, Square and Facebook are going all in on remote working, companies like Google and Salesforce are extending work from home options for the rest of the year with plans to reopen offices in 2021. Mm. However... And this is the interesting point. If working from home becomes an attractive perk in the ultra-competitive hiring market for tech workers, companies may have no choice. You know, Google famously discouraged remote working from the past, but the article points out that the Chromebook was built across 30 offices. And then they've got people saying, you know what, if 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 I if I can work um anywhere, but for 80% less of my salary, I'll do that. And if I can't do that, sod it, I'll go find another job. Mm. And if it does become a perk where it's like, I could live in Hawaii and do my job. I, you know, me personally, Akish, I could turn around and go, I could live in South France and do my job. If I can't do that, why why don't I just go find a company that does let me do that? Yep. And this is what companies saying, no, we're going back to the office are going to be up against. Yeah, massively. And and I just think it's going to be so difficult because we've built we've built it into our norm, right? We've built it in. We, I mean, before we started recording, we were just talking about our morning routines. And it feels weird now thinking about what it used to be like before you were working from home. I mean, for yeah. me, it is anyway. Um, I, I can't imagine myself, you know, kind of doing the whole morning routine and commute and all that sort of thing now. Because um, no. it, it's been it's been quite a long time. So suddenly it will be another shock to the system. Yes. But I just think companies are going to find it very, very difficult. And to be honest, is it, I think it will. I think I think it's for, for the better, to be fair. Like if we can have people that are given the freedom to be wherever they want, as long as obviously the work is done and, and the quality of work is still there, who gives a crap? 
you know, it, it doesn't well, the matter. The thing is as well, right, if you don't do a good job, it's not going to be a case of, oh, we better go back to the office. I don't think the option, it's going to be, let's go back to the office, people aren't being productive. It's going to be, get rid of that person, find someone who is productive. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think anybody who thinks that going back to the office is going to be the, the answer to this, I think they're going to sorely find themselves mistaken. Yeah. Um, Exactly. In the long run, because because even if some companies try and do that, the point is not everyone is going to do that. And then I think that the that, that choice, you, you're going to have more choice and flexibility and options as an employer, uh, sorry, as an employee rather, rather than an employer where it's always yeah. been, this is how it works. So therefore you have to accept it. Yeah. And also how much are these companies going to save? If we take Silicon Valley, for example, how much are they going to save on, I know a lot of the, the offices are owned by these massive tech giants, but you know, other smaller firms or maybe mid to, you know, mid to large firms, oh, yeah. they're going to save millions on rent, on costs and putting people. Well, you must have friends who, you know, I've got friends who I've spoken to where it's, you know, they're trying to reduce costs and one of the biggest overheads is office space. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And if, if you can then just use a little bit of that and maybe upgrade the, you know the hardware that you give your employees to make you maybe have a better laptop or some better you know technology um then 100 percent, you know the yeah. i guess the the payoff on that would be a lot more than bringing everyone back into the office you know you suddenly get you know you know what feelings motivations that sort of stuff and it, and it would just be very very difficult yeah. also that's away from the psychological side that some people might not feel comfortable being in large spaces with people again you know after the, the whole thing that we've um are still going through i was going to say yeah. i've gone through but yeah hopefully we're, we can say that soon but yeah, yeah. that we're still going yeah, absolutely well akish thanks for joining me on today's show no problem plenty of interesting topic and conversation everyone else have a lovely weekend we'll be back next week <laughs>